0: Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm Stacey Toth, bestselling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real life solutions for families seeking health. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times
1: bestselling author and creator of ThePaleoMom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics.
0: I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. So, I would say we've had three long questions. We should try to should do, do rapid fire. We should do a rapid fire. Is that? Oh,
1: yeah. yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. So we should do a rapid
1: fire, like everybody's favorite questions. Mm-hmm. My favorite color is green.
0: No, that's mm-hmm. not.
1: That might be what they ask. You might want to know. Okay.
0: Do you guys want to know my favorite color? Mm-hmm. It's black. <laughs> you had a mixed response there. Um, Because why would they care?
1: (laughs) That might be all they came here for. You don't know. You're making assumptions.
0: What's your follow-up?
2: Okay, my follow-up. My name is Christine, and
0: I'm pretty sure I heard you say that different autoimmune diseases would have
1: different vitamin and mineral deficiencies. So my question is, how do you find out which one is specific to you? So it's more that um, there's this collection of studies that have looked at an autoimmune disease and they've either measured you know vitamin D levels as the classic example in a group of clients and how, how many of them are deficient and oh look it's 93 percent of them um, or and/or they have supplemented with a nutrient and shown some kind of improvement in disease markers but there aren't very many Studies that look at collections of nutrients. There's a couple that look at two or three. um, And there are not very many studies that look at a collection of autoimmune diseases. Like they might couple inflammatory bowel disease together and look at both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. They might couple Graves and Hashimoto's together. They might do that. But there aren't these like sweeping studies that go... Hey, let's look at these 24 autoimmune diseases and then we'll look at these 20 nutrients and we'll start to pick apart. So what there is now is basically this collection of individual studies that you can say, Hey, they've looked at, you know, Hashimoto's thyroiditis and shown these, you know, it's, uh, iodine, selenium, iron, and zinc, right? Like, There's that, but has anyone gone and said, well, how important is vitamin C and Hashimoto's? No, no one's actually looked. So it's it's a little bit different than saying certain nutrient deficiencies are tied with certain autoimmune diseases. It's more saying there's incomplete data right now, and we have some data for some nutrients and some autoimmune diseases, but we don't know about the other ones. So what we can say is that there's certain frequent flyers, like vitamin D, like vitamin A, like zinc... Um, Like um, omega-3 fats. Those are the most common ones that have been studied and the most common ones to be beneficial with supplementation. Um, You can look at the nutrients that the immune system uses. Um, You see vitamin A, I mean, most of the vitamins, but vitamin A and vitamin D are really key for regulatory actions. Uh, Zinc also very, very key for regulatory actions. Um, the immune system uses, because there's some, some proteins in the immune system that need methylation to be able to control the immune system. So uh, B6, B9, B12. Uh, vitamin C and vitamin E are really key antioxidants. So that's important for immune system function. Um, iron, copper, magnesium. There's probably one I'm missing because you put me on the spot here. Um, but there's, you know, some key nutrients that have really fundamental roles in the immune system. And it's sort of no, no surprise when you think of it that way, that a deficiency in one of those nutrients would impact how the immune system's functioning. Um, and so then you kind of go, well, like, of course, nutrient deficiencies then are linked to diseases that have, I mean, it's not just autoimmune disease. That's why we see nutrient deficiencies linked with cardiovascular disease because the root of cardiovascular disease is still inflammation. And that's why we see it linked with obesity and diabetes. Like that that's why it's because the immune system needs those nutrients to work properly. So it's a little bit different than saying, well, Hey, I have rheumatoid arthritis, which, which supplements should I take because deficiency is a problem. I mean, there's, there's a fair amount of science with nutrient, you know, supplements and, and, um, RA, but it's, it's not like there's this, these great big sweeping studies that have really nailed down all of these links.
0: That sense? Yep. Yeah. Great. Do you guys want to ask us questions? And I will challenge Sarah to answer them quickly.
2: I have a quick question. I think it's quick.
0: Okay. It's, I'm not usually quick at answering, but that's all right. I'll
1: do my best. follow-up
2: <laughs> to the first question about um, children. In, uh, so I have celiac and Hashimoto's, and we've chosen now to make our daughter gluten-free and dairy-free. But how will I ever know if she's going to have celiac if she's not eating gluten am I just going to have to suck it up one day and give her gluten per month and then test her and this one I don't know like I want to maybe reduce the risk of him getting it so should I give it to him at like six months then not give it to him ever again and then
0: test him later so the question is as a follow up to the first question that we had which for podcast world that's probably an episode or two ago (laughs)
2: um
0: it's okay um About uh, when to potentially introduce. When an F. Or or when, if you choose to not introduce it, essentially, like when would you know if someone did have a gluten intolerance or not? And my answer would be the same as the first answer I had, which is that we just chose to assume, based on family background, that gluten intolerance was a problem and that um, we found out what a reaction was based on an exposure. I don't need a piece of paper to tell me whether or not my kids have celiac for me to know that gluten intolerance runs in the family. It's easier for me because my mom has anaphylactic reaction to weed. So it's like, it's pretty easy to put that in a box and be like, yep, we're not going to do that. You know, like we don't want to do that. So, um, but I think... If, you, if it really is important to you for one reason or another to have that, then you would need to have exposure to do the testing because there's no way to not be exposed and then you know, see damage from exposure. That's, it's it just doesn't work that way.
1: I mean, the other thing with your daughter is you know, chances are very good that at some time in her life... She will rebel and eat <laughs> all the gluten, and there would be nothing wrong with waiting until that point yep. for her to find out. And she starts eating the gluten, and she starts having symptoms of celiac, and then you go, hey, this is why we didn't give you gluten all the time when we had control over what you were eating.
0: But see, the, mm-hmm. the thing with symptoms of celiac, and it, like quotation marks with that, is that it can show in so many different ways in different people. And some people can have celiac with no symptoms at all, like, or no digestive symptoms, right? So now I've improved my gut health. When I accidentally got exposed to gluten, I did not have like the violent stomach reaction. I actually had an emotional, um, depressive kind of reaction, um, which is what happens to Cole as well. So he says to me, well, I don't have digestive problems when I eat gluten." And I'm like, what, so? Like, you're still, you still obviously are reacting. So it, to me, it really, it doesn't, it, a piece of paper or a test isn't going to solve the real question, which is, should I eat it or not? And if the answer is, it, you don't do well on it, then the goal is to avoid it, right? Like, pure and simple. Because. And- They can't do anything for you if you have celiac. It's not like once you have a diagnosis, they can solve it. They can't do that. The answer is they're going to tell you to avoid gluten, which you're doing to begin with. You're right the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Keep doing what you were doing before you reintroduced it to have this test. It just doesn't make a lot of sense for me. Yeah. And then
1: in terms of the baby, um, the research that's new that's coming out, they've, they've done it with gluten. They've done it with other allergens, and they show... That they're, And they've done it with celiac disease and shown that there's a lower risk of celiac disease if gluten is uh, introduced um, while you're still breastfeeding. And the longer you breastfeed, the lower the risk. I mean, the, then that's independent of if you ever give them gluten. The longer you breastfeed, the lower the risk. Um, so no pressure, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> None. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... You know that though is the science like super cut and dry that every single person should be introducing wheat before their kids wean. I think what the science mostly said is says is the longer you breastfeed, the better. That that really is the the clearest message. Um, if I had another one, which I'm not, but if I did, would I? This is always I always like turn turn it around. If it was my situation. Um, I would probably try a little bit of wheat a couple of times, but like I nursed both of my kids until they were just over two years old. So I'd probably do it towards the end, you know, like I'd probably do it at one and a half. So I'd wait a good long time so that they maybe even had some ability to communicate how they were feeling. Cause that's also like when a baby's having a reaction, it can be really hard to tell. I mean, still when you're changing diapers, there can be some good signs, but if it's a more of an emotional response or um you know my oldest over here who's looking like she's having so much fun um she had stomach aches and she had them every time she ate and she didn't know that was weird until we went gluten-free when she was five years old and then she told me mommy i like food now because i don't have a tummy ache all the time anymore which was just digging in the knife and twisting it, I think. Um, but she didn't know. She she had no frame of reference for it. She didn't know that was weird. So with an older child with some language capabilities, if you are able to nurse that long, um, you've got a little bit more opportunity to, to isolate any other possible reactions. Um, but it doesn't need to be much. So the studies that do um, did peanut allergies, they were giving, I think it was two grams of peanut protein a week. It was sort of the equivalent of like six peanuts a week. Um, and that was how much they were they were giving and that was reducing the number of peanut allergies later. So it, it's not like you have to be like, and now yeah, we're going to have pasta all the time. It can be like a bite here and there when the opportunity presents itself and, and watch to see what happens. And if you do see signs of reaction, like stop. It's, it's not going to help you to keep going.
0: The other thing to consider is if you're nursing that long, which is what I think happened with Wesley. Like, I know I was exposed to gluten while I was nursing, and that would have been passed through breast milk as well. Yeah. So, to me, yeah. that kind of covered the base, and I didn't feel like I needed to put it in his mouth. But <laughs> okay, Jessica had a follow up to the follow up. Yeah. So you can come forward again. Yeah. <laughs>
2: The, I was gonna, I don't know what you think of the Enterolab test, but that was sort of my first um, testing uh, for um, gluten sensitivity and malabsorption and celiac and everything. And so, when my son was two, we did the cheek swab DNA test. And so, you know, he clearly has the, the genetic dis- disposition for celiac, and we had not done any gluten at that time at all, and, and never have intentionally, with a, only a few accidents. Um, and so, with my second child, we just said, you know, we have celiac. And so that I have sort of one piece of paper that says, I think he would have gone that way. Um, and it's just been, I do, and it's clear my husband, who hasn't done the test, has sensitivity. So it just seems like so, and I, you know, I know that I think he got stuff with both of them. So I feel like they already came in with, you know, issues clearly. And um, and so to even do a little bit, I, like, I just wouldn't even go there at all.
1: So what's really interesting about the celiac susceptibility genes, HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8, is there's been studies done in um, people without celiac, but who also have digestive symptoms, and they've actually shown that they are still getting the zonulin response to gluten. So they're still getting a leaky gut in response to gluten that's just not celiac disease. Um, Now, does that mean every single person with HLA-DQ2 or HLA-DQ8, which is like... 60% of the population is one of those two, um, has the zonulin response actually probably. Um, so that's probably our gluten sensitive population right there is, is linked with, with that genetics. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I think that having one of those celiac risk genes would be a compelling argument to not mess with gluten. Because of the possibility of a leaky gut reaction, even without developing celiac, Um, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Thanks. That was me being fast. I've got to follow up to the follow up. (laughs) -up. Um,
0: This is going to be the follow up podcast. Should I come back? I think you're good. Uh, Just speak loudly. Okay.
3: Um, So. There's the Gluten-Free Society website. I don't know if you've ever looked at them, but the doctor that is on there who is a you know big researcher and has this whole practice in both celiac disease and gluten sensitivity, he claims that there's actually two other genes that are associated with um, gluten sensitivity, and that's the HLA-DQ1 and DQ3, which... No standard celiac genetic test ever looks for those two, they just look for the two and the eight. Do you know if there's anything? I can't, that's the only place I've ever seen those two specifically noted, and I haven't been able to yet figure out how or from where he's determined those two are
1: linked to gluten sensitivity. I have not seen anything, so I'm really curious about that one. So, I have not seen anything. Uh, t- that effect but that being said I've never specifically looked through the millions of articles on PubMed for that so I've never looked for it but I've never happened on it and I've done a lot of looking for you know genetic links with gluten sensitivity. I've never seen it. That doesn't mean it's not there. That's just not something that I've looked for.
0: This is where, if it were a regular podcast, she would be.
1: Let me look through (laughs) PubMed right now. But my phone's there, so I can't. I don't
3: know if it's like a newer thing, maybe that's been being discovered. I mean, especially with all the genetic mean, a lot of it is. So
1: there is still 3% of celiacs who aren't HLA-DQ2 or HLA-DQ8. 3%? Mm -hmm. Really? I thought
3: it was lower than that. Red
1: 04
3: percent, which again it
1: depends on your source. Well, it right? depends. It also <laughs> depends on the country that these studies are done right. in, too, yeah. right? So, um, you know, what I've seen from meta analysis is about ninety seven percent of celiacs have HLA DQ two or DQ eight. Um, so there's that other three percent that are getting having that reaction to gluten with a different genetic susceptibility. So. Uh, I mean that could be dq1 dq3 right
3: yeah i mean i have definitely heard of people who don't have the genes and yet they're diagnosed celiac so clearly we don't have a full picture and the point is there's about it's not that it's not genetic we just maybe yeah. really don't have 100 percent clarity yet because no and there's already
1: people. more than a dozen hla variants that are linked with different autoimmune diseases right. um you know, clearly that gene is really important. Sure. Um, when you think of what it does in the immune system, it makes sense that it would be important. Um, and that, but that's not that's not a short answer, so I'm I'm going to stop with that and not talk about major histocompatibility complex stuff. But um, but I think that the chances of other variants
0: being linked with diseases is very high.
3: Okay. Yeah. Thank
0: you. Do you guys have any questions on that side of the room? Another. Oh, uh, sorry.
3: Here we go. Since you just took a long road trip, can you share with us your paleo snacks or how hard it was to eat on the road?
1: Yeah, we we packed everything. Um, meaning you. Meaning I. I am the cook in my house and the the shopper. So. Yes, I packed everything. Um, We didn't. To be fair, the husband did the dishes. Yes, (laughs) my husband does. This is our. This has been our arrangement for nearly 22 years. I cook. He does the dishes. It works out well. I like cooking, and I would rather scrub toilets than do dishes. That's how much I enjoy doing dishes. So um, we didn't even try to eat on the road. But that was because it was such a long trip, and we were really worried about the time constraints. So what we did was we packed um, our lunch was a picnic lunch. Um, the kids had now the kids like hot dogs straight out of the package, so I have this this benefit. So I had um, actually, I found a grass-fed organic, uncured beef hot dogs at Walmart, um, and they were on like super sale because ca- apparently nobody knows about these yet. So they were like regular the organic ones were regular, five dollars a package, but they were on sale for 350, so compared that to. $9 for the Applegate Farms one at Whole Foods. I was really excited about this. Um, so they had those. I had um, some canned salmon mix for myself because I'm, I'm in a canned salmon phase. Um, and uh, my husband had actually some leftover just cooked salmon. I was like, oh, that's got to go in here too. We had a huge baggie of uh, chopped, I cut up carrot, celery, and cucumber. We had apples. We had um, some potato chips, Boulder Canyon ones that are done in all of our avocado oil. You said it. I said it for you. Um, we had uh, epic snack strips for snacks in the car. I had rice crackers for my kids for snacks in the car. Um, I had uh, Powerballs for snacks in the car. I had some 85% chocolate that we didn't end up opening, but that was like if we really need this boost of something, um, at, you know, for driving, um, we had water to drink. And then for what I had made for dinner was like a stew. And I had had a little, uh, like hot plate, warmy thing. It was really designed for a one serving. Uh, so we, we figured out after two hours and our stew was like mm, lukewarm. I was like, Oh, you, you need to, when it says two hours, they mean, For one serving, and we should have really put it in about four hours earlier. Um, But because my car has a like a regular plug, so we're able to just plug that in. Um, It was still nice to have something warm on the road.
0: We've done rotisserie chicken, either like stopping at Walmart's—it's not the best ingredients—or you can even do like Whole Foods. Or if you pack it and put it in a cooler, like the Trader Joe's clean chicken strips, you can you know just eat out of the package. Um, that's what we usually eat on the road because it's easy for, to give the kids all a leg. And it can be cold. It can be room temperature. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have to get two chickens because there's that many boys. boys. Okay. Like, there's three boys and well, two Well, even with my two
1: girls, we've done a lot of road
0: trips where there have been two chickens in the yeah. in the road trip. Yeah. In, my, in my cooler. So um, As the driver, I literally tear off the <laughs> breast. And I'm just like...
1: <laughs> Um, and one of the things we're talking about on the the way back is maybe finding a burger place, you know, there's, it might be hard to find grass fed burger places, but you know, there's a lot of burger joints now that can handle gluten-free really, really well. And they know how to clean the grill and we can do a lettuce wrap. The kids can have a gluten-free bun. It would be fine. Um, so we're sort of talking about that versus like go out to Whole Foods or something the night before and get a rotisserie Chicken. Um, so those are, we still haven't figured that out. But, um, you know, my, I, I pack a cooler that's in the trunk and I have a snack bag that sits between the kids. And, um, and it's, you know, it's all the same portable foods that we use at home. Um, I always try to make sure there's protein in there because that's one of the things that evens out everybody's mood in the car because we all get really grumpy. Um, and my kids have discovered the Epic snack strips, and they love them. And that's really the only jerky-like or meat snack that they really willingly eat. Um, and then I always have raw vegetables, and I always have fruit. Like those are standard. And then I always have something sweet, because when we're all cranky and miserable, having a sweet treat. And we had this was what we had Powerballs for. Um, having a sweet treat, just it's like. Everyone goes like, oh, road trips are extra fun because we're going to get a, some kind of junk food, right? So, mm-hmm. and yes, we call those junk food. It's fine. Yeah. Um, I also had, um, my oldest back there really likes um, Cliff Kit bars, which are like Lara bars. So I had some of those for her. And I had raisins for my youngest, who That's her equivalent of, you know, sweet thing that I get to nibble on. Um, but yeah, and I packed um, enough food for about 20 people. Yes. The other thing that I did.
0: Yep. Finn is actively eating out of a snack bag. Much of those same foods. The only thing I would add is my kids really like the strips. So like chomp beef strips are like Slim Jims almost. And then we like the Rome pork sticks. So those two uh, my boys love. And the Epic Bites. We don't like the uh, bars, like the texture, especially if it's like sitting lukewarm in the car, can sometimes have like a weird mouthfeel. But they really like the Epic Bites um, which are like the liver bites Were the original mm-hmm. kind of bites yeah. And now they've got like a bajillion delicious My kids find plates. the bites
1: too chewy The um, so snack strips are like Eight bites linked together But they're slightly softer But not as soft as the
0: bars So that's that's their like sweet spot I like H- the bars Each their own But yeah Hi, thank you. It was not a quick answer She forgot that it was supposed to be rapid fire It's because I packed a lot of food Yeah I was just listing it all off. There's Did just- you guys have any questions back there before I wrap up? Um,
2: I'm here.
0: <laughs> He's calling on you. <laughs>
2: um, I would like to know if either of you use a water filter in your
0: house or if you use one, why? Do you know Matt will answer this for me. Well, you got to repeat the question because that might not work. a So she asked if we use a water filter and if so, Which, and if not, why, essentially.
4: Do you want me to say my thing?
0: Sure. Matt feels really strongly about this, and then Sarah can give you the other side of the coin, because I know she doesn't feel the same
2: way.
4: Tap water is one of the greatest inventions of mankind. (laughs) The fact that we have potable water that is delivered to our house for cheap Mm -hmm. at any time we want is great and fantastic. And it goes through so much process to get it to potability in your pipes, in your house, like I really feel like honoring our water engineers. He, genu- drinking he
0: really genuinely like feels emotionally attached. I, I, to feel real, I
4: feel really, really strongly about like how awesome tap was so
0: is. how marriage works is when one person feels more strongly about something than the other. Then the other just is like if it's that important to you.
4: That cool. said, that's
0: Aka,
1: it. pick your battles.
4: <laughs> that said, we did have you know a fridge that had you know a filter in it and you know a, a spout on it, and Stacy would drink from there, and I would. But drink we're
0: from not drinking the cat water. <laughs> um,
1: I agree with that statement, but I also um, a large number of the members of my family have chloramine sensitivity. Um, and chloramine is added, at, to kill. That's the chlorine that's in water is the chemical they actually add is chloramine. Um, and it made my brother extremely ill. He missed nearly an entire year of school in high school, um, which was how we discovered the sensitivity across many of my family members. Um, so I have always used a, at least a Brita filter to remove, that removes most of the chlorine and, and uh, fluoride and, um... And, I mean, I, my municipal water is Desani, so I figure if I put it through a Brita, I've got Desani. That's pretty much, you know, the, the Desani plant's just down the road. So I figure, there we go. I've got super expensive water if I just put it through a charcoal filter. I was, um, I recently won a $350 uh, reverse osmosis filter. And I did set it up, and I have been using it. Um I feel like I have to add so much minerals back into it. So one of the things that I don't think we realize generally, sorry, it's not a short answer anymore, is how much mineral content came in the prehistoric diet from water sources. Um, And even the water processing that happens to get the water into our taps, that water is not as mineral rich as the water sources that... Um, people would have consumed until really only the last couple hundred years. So I think that a lot of our mineral deficiencies can be fixed with um, remineralizing our tap water. Um, So I use trace minerals um, and also another mineral drop that's name I can't remember. I think it's called EM Drops.
2: Um,
1: I add it to their water as well. Um, So um so i i feel quite strongly that um you know this is mostly adding magnesium calcium potassium and then some trace minerals right um those are things that we tend to be deficient in within the paleo diet even um so i like i think that's you know it's it's probably adding up to 20% of their rda is coming from water now um and it's you add enough that it you know it's not you're not drinking like salty disgusting water like it's you're you're only adding a few drops to a large amount of water. So um, would I have gone out and bought a reverse osmosis water filter? No, nah, I would have stuck with my cheapo carbon. Um, and that really comes from our my family's history of sensitivity. Um, I think you know you can you can. I come from a socialist country where we trust our government to look after us. We trust our government to do things like water testing and, not tell, and tell us if there's lead in our water. That is not necessarily the American experience. <laughs> um, so, um, so I think there's that extra little piece of, you know, knowing where, where the water's coming from, knowing the history, um, paying attention to those sorts of things. The big centers don't have issues in America the way small towns do. Um, but you know Flint Michigan is hardly the only town in this country with um, contaminated water to the point of being toxic and killing people so um, so with the extra little bit of see how I'm coming American here with my like for the extra little bit of you know you want to make sure that your municipal water is properly treated and you don't have issues with you know lead or other heavy metals from your pipes with that extra little addition I think that um, the Tap water is is perfectly fine.
4: I do want to add that um, my when when I was growing up, I grew up in Massachusetts, and in Massachusetts, they uh, there it, it was very hit and miss with that type of well, well water and municipal water, right? So our dentist, because he assumed everyone had well water, was prescribing everybody chloride drops every time say you know fluoride drums put it in your water, like whatever. And we had, you know, municipal water which was fluoridated. And so both me and my late brother Andrew had stained teeth, essentially from over fluoridation. Um, so, you know, it's just a matter of knowing what's in your water. Yeah. But your water's probably okay. I mean particularly in Fairfax County in Arlington County, Alexander County, your water's probably gonna be okay.
1: What's interesting about fluoridated water is that um, it's it's very unlikely to be causing any kind of health problems, but it hasn't. The science has not really shown that it improves dental health. Fluoridated toothpaste, there's really compelling science showing that that improves dental health and reduces cavities. Um, but the idea behind fluoridated water it hasn't translated. So um, whether or not it's worth going out of your way to take the fluoride out. There's some science to show that fluoride may sequester in the pineal gland and over 60, 70, 80 years maybe decrease the amount of melatonin that your pineal gland can secrete. And that might be linked with some sleep disturbances in the elderly, but it's very, very like... That's, that's kind of like if A leads to B, maybe G leads to H. It's, there's a lot of steps in between that, that there hasn't been any science to, to figure out. Um, But that's going to get out of your tap with a normal um, carbon filter. You don't need to go crazy town to get that out if that's something that um, you might be concerned about.
0: Okay. Well, thanks, everybody, for coming out. I just want to wrap up what I know we've said a couple times. But this is your community, so please... Meet Exchange phone numbers. Meet people who are here, it's it's so magical and special that um you joined us for this because as Sarah and I have said, five years of weekly podcasting um has not been for the two of us, it's been for the community and for the experiences that we've had meeting all of our listeners, both independently and together at signings and stuff like that. So um thank you so much for coming out and I hope that this was a fun experience i would love to talk with you all and find out where you live and uh, make sure that you connect with one another because it is it's so awesome to see um local people uh, coming together and not just you know for us but for your own betterment and your own health and your own healing and that kind of stuff so thanks for coming out thank you, thank you.
1: for listening to The Paleo View if you enjoyed the show please take a moment to rate us on iTunes you can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal so what did you think of our first live podcast
0: I think you talk a lot <laughs>
2: You, you haven't noticed that? No,
0: I, you asked me. I'm going to answer. Of course I know that. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I don't think that's different no, than normal. No, it's absolutely not different all right. at all. That's fine. Yeah, you I'd, did I'd, mostly uh, eye contact with the live audience and not me, so it was fine. I tried. Yeah. I was looking at you when you were talking,
1: but you were making eye contact with someone yeah, else. exactly. So it wasn't awkward, I don't think. It's awkward right now. It's I can tell. Awkward. I can tell you are just <laughs> feeling like this is so, too much. So awkward. Well, I enjoyed this. Excellent. Thanks, everyone. And thanks, Sarah, for
0: coming up. Yeah, now I just have to drive home.
4: <laughs> if you need me to drop you off, I love hard rides.
0: Yeah, what you need is a mat in the family. But we do. he does not like filtered water. It's okay. We have water that comes out of our taps at home.
4: You pick you, you your water?
0: <laughs> we do. We do.
1: And it's almost a sunny.